you would please take your Bibles, open them up to the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're continuing on in the series, Faith Works, the belief that true faith actually has an effect. It will do things to us. It will change our lives. I do love the book of James from the first time I read it. I don't know when that was, but I've, I've always loved this book. Three reasons why I love it. One, I love the brevity. I love how short it is. 108 verses. This is one of those books that you can open up in one sitting and read it beginning to end. Um, I always get frustrated whenever I read a book, uh, not the Bible, any, any book, and I'm just like counting the pages to the end of the chapter. You ever do that? Uh, you're like, all right, how many, how many pages do I have left? It's like, keep counting. I can't spend more time counting than I do reading. Uh, James isn't that way. Beginning to end is pretty brief, 108 verses. I love the book of James because it is uh, it's very instructional. It has, think of, think of this, it has 108 verses, but it also has 54 imperatives. So 54 different times in 108 verses, James is telling us how we ought to live our lives, how we, uh, how, how we ought to live that, that's, that's, a, that's encouraging to me because I'm the type of person that's like, just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do, and I, I can try to do it. Uh, so I, I love that about James. I think another reason people love James is because it's very proverbial, uh, very quippy in the way that he says things. He, he uses these illustrations that just tend to, to stay in our mind. Uh, one in particular is like whenever he's talking about the person who reads the word but then does not do what it says. It's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He's using those, those type of images throughout the entire book that just makes it so memorable. Um, the downside is oftentimes I think we do read James almost like we read Proverbs. Uh, we read it in little, little chunks, and we're always thinking that he's changing the topic, when in reality uh, we can't forget that the book of James is, is, is a letter. It's a letter that James, a brother of Jesus, wrote uh, to Jews who are dispersed over the world, to Christians dispersed over the world. And, and I think we find this especially in chapter 1, because when Dave finished his talk last week on trials that we face in our life, he finished that in, in verse 11. In our minds, we kind of flip a switch and say, all right, what's the new topic? Oh, the new topic is now temptations. And, uh, but in reality, all these things are tied together. And what we find is whenever we look at James chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about how we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kind. That word trials, when we look down in verse 12, he says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under a trial for when he has stood the test. And then we go down a few more verses and it talks about how we are tempted. All these words, whether it be a trial, whether it be test, or whether it be a temptation, all of those words come from the same Greek root word. They're all, they're all related. So James' topic is actually continuing on. So this, this is kind of part two of Dave's sermon that he preached last week on how we ought to face trials in our life. Because I think there is a, a strong truth, is that with every trial we have in our life, with every test that we have in our life, there is going to be an accompanying temptation. There's going to be some wrong desire within us which is wanting us to, to 
to sin against our God. Every test, every trial has accompanying temptations. So let's go ahead and read our verses for tonight, and then, and then we'll get started looking more in depth into them. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, may we, as we look into these verses a little more, may your Holy Spirit be with us, instructing us, showing us, Lord, uh, what you have to teach us. May we be humble to accept it. May you give me assistance in proclaiming it, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we want to do today is we want to look at these few verses and talk about these, these temptations that come along with the trials and the tests of life. And we are kind of doing an upside-down sermon. So most sermons, the points are saying, this is what you ought to do. Uh, tonight's sermon we're saying this is what you shouldn't do. Uh, So the title of tonight's sermon is How to Shipwreck Your Life. If you really want to mess up your life, if you want to shipwreck your faith, these are some things that that you ought to do as you face the trials and temptations of life. Our first point is if you really want to shipwreck your life, one of the things that you need to do is focus on the temporal. Focus on, on the immediate situation the immediate temptation at hand. That's a good way to start shipwrecking your faith. As we look at James chapter 1, verse 12, what we find is that we are going to face tests and we are going to face trials. In fact, one of the things we can kind of infer is that all of life is essentially a test. Because when do we receive the prize from God? If we endure to the end, we receive the crown of life. So we don't actually receive the prize until we die. So as we live this life on earth, we'll be facing test after test, trial after trial until we die. This shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus in the book of John chapter 16 verse 33 said, in this life you will have trials and tribulations in this life, you will have trouble. We see this in the book of James, don't we? Uh, where he's talking about, in chapter 1, he's giving warnings to both the poor man and the rich man, two people in two situations with two very uh, uh, different lives. They, they are both facing trials. The poor man will face certain trials, as will the rich man face different trials. And we see that in all of our lives. I think 
If you uh, are anyone in here an only child, yeah, you got a, got a couple. I mean, I, 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 as a youth guy, as a teacher, and sometimes I would hear people who were only children say, it was so tough being an only child. I mean, there is, it was just so lonely. There's no one to hang out with, no siblings. But then you talk with people who had siblings, which would be the rest of us, and it was, oh, it's so tough being a sibling, of having to put up with my brother and my sister. You have a man who has no job, and he says, it is so hard not having a job. And the man with a job turning around saying, I wish I could give you mine because I can't stand my job. Two men, two situations, two different types of trials and two different types of temptations. We see this with people who who are married and single, where a single person might say, I really long to be uh, in, a, in a family so I, can, so I, can, so I, so I won't have this a, a loneliness in me. And then you have a person who is married say, you know what, I really wish I could just get alone for five minutes. I can't get a- away from people. And so we see all of life, no matter what situation that we are in, we are facing uh, these tests for, for temptations and trials coming up in our lives. And I think a way that we ruin our life and the way that we shipwreck our life is, is we focus and we fixate on, on that which is immediate around us. What we like to do in our country oftentimes, in our, in our culture, is we like, we like the quick fix. We like the easy way out. We like the instant gratification. The, 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 the easiest way to get this problem solved, let's, let's do it so we can be done with it, and let's get on to something better. Why, that's why all these, uh, these get-rich-quick get schemes are always working because people are like, what's the quickest way I can get to financial freedom? That, that's the route I'm going to take. We, we focus on the temporal. We focus on the immediate right around us. I think one good example of that recently in the news is, is a story with Ashley Madison. Are you all familiar with this? A few, few of us are. Ashley Madison is, is not a person. It's actually a website uh, that's in the news because it was a website. It was almost like a, I, I don't know how to describe it. It, it was a website that, that allowed people to have affairs. So if you were frustrated, if you were angry, if you were dissatisfied, if you were curious, uh, and you thought, I just want to have an affair, you would go onto this website you would create an ID, you would log in, and this website would connect you with other married people who are also wanting to have an affair. Uh, and what's happened recently is, is uh, I'm sure this website was big on security, right? These people don't want to be found out, but somebody was able to hack into the website, and they've made public every email, every username, every profile uh, from that website. There's 32 million people with logins, 32 million people with, with profiles. Think about that. There are 330, approximately 330 million people in the United States, and 32 million people have a, have a login there. It's about the population of Canada, about 32 million what was going on? These people who signed up, like all people, they, they had a frustration, they had a, a, a loneliness, they had 
They had some desire within them that they felt was not being met. And they said, I'm going to go with the quick fix. I think this will do it. This is easy. This will bring me what I desire. And it is a surefire way to ruin and shipwreck your faith. A faith that focuses on the temporal, a faith that focuses on the things of this earth is not an enduring faith. However, an enduring faith keeps its eyes on the prize. It says this in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We see this example in Job, don't we? A man who faced trials, a man who faced temptations, and he didn't look at, at his immediate situation for, 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 for hope, did he? Here is a man who, who lost 12 children in one accident. He had all of his possessions stolen away from him. All of his uh, employees or servants uh, murdered, had no home. His friends came around him, not as much to comfort him, but to accuse him. And his wife coming beside his side saying, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? The easiest way for you to solve your problem, Job, is for you to take your life. That's what you ought to do. And what is Job's response to his situation? It says this in Job chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my flesh has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job's hope was in eternity. He had an eternal focus. He wasn't focused on on the situation right around him. And what we find is that if we want to have a faith that endures, we need to have an eternal perspective about life. We need to think more about the reward, this crown of righteousness that God has promised to those who love him, who endure to the end. I think one of the ways that we can think about things better in our life, ironically, is to think about our death. Death is not something a whole lot of people in our culture think about. Oftentimes we like to think about life and what we want to do with our life and our hopes and our dreams, but, but not a whole lot of us focus on our death. One of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, uh, in his writings talked about how each night when he laid down his head at night, he would think about his own mortality, of how he is not promised tomorrow. Why, why would he do this? Why, why would we think about our death? Whenever we are thinking about the end of things, one of the things that we want to do is we want to make sure we have our house in order, that we are living the way that we want to live whenever we approach the king of the universe, our judge, and also our savior. So if we are thinking more of our death, that is going to give us a perspective more of how we ought to live our life. Because how, how does our culture live life? Our culture lives lives with with a bucket list. 
I think I might have mentioned this before. I can't, I can't recall or not. But the bucket list, that's this whole concept. It was a movie a few years back. This bucket list is, is what do you want to do with your life? What are things that you want to see, places you want to go, things you want to do before you die? And that, that's the bucket list that people are saying, this is how we ought to live our lives, fulfilling these things. You ever thought, why is our culture so enamored with this idea and concept of a bucket list? And the reason is, is because they don't see that there is actually life after death. This life is all that there is to our world. And we need to make sure we have an eternal perspective, realizing that there is actually life after this life. That when we die as Christians, man, we are actually beginning the first chapter of eternity. This life is, is a preface to, to eternity. And so that ought to change the way that a Christian lives their lives. If we want to shipwreck our life, we need to focus on the temporal. If we want to have an enduring, steadfast faith, then we need to focus on eternity. Another thing we need to do if we want to make sure that we shipwreck our life is found in verses 13 through 15. If we want to shipwreck our life, one of the things that we need to make sure we do is we need to make sure that we blame God for every temptation and sin that we have. Listen to verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think James realized that there would be an accusation made against God, that somebody would say, listen, these root words are all the same. Trial, test, temptation. Therefore, if God is in charge of trials and tests, then God must also be in charge of our temptations. And if God is in charge of my temptations, then God must be responsible for my sin. And how can I be held responsible if he is responsible for my sin? James makes it very clear in this book that God is not responsible for the sin in your life. Not only that, he is saying God is not responsible for the temptations in your life, that those temptations actually come from your own sinful desires. You can think about it this way. It is very possible to be responsible for a test, but not responsible for a failure of that test. Um, I I uh, actually teach a class at a local school. I teach a Bible class on, on Christian worldview. It's a fun class. I love it. At least I do. I don't know if my students do, but I really have a lot of fun with it. Um, and this week, I actually gave an exam. Uh, my exams are essay exams, so I give you two questions. You fill up a sheet of paper on it, and, uh, and then I grade it. And I feel like I'm a pretty easy teacher. Um, so I, I gave them my lesson plans for Monday, and the students read the lesson plans of what we're doing for the week. And when they opened those lesson plans up on Monday, it said, on Friday, you're going to have an essay test. And here are the questions for the essay. That's pretty genetry, right? Like, before you show up to the test, I'm giving you the questions. Not only that, I feel like I communicate well my expectations. Because that Tuesday, I said, listen, does anyone have questions about 
the questions for the essay? Uh, no? Well, this is how I would answer the questions if I were taking the test, right? Then only that, the next day's assignment that I sent them home with, I said, listen, go home and, uh, and why don't you outline? Your assignment today is to outline your answer for the test on Friday. We get back on Thursday. I said, how'd it go? How'd the outlines go? You have any questions uh, about your outlines? No? Okay, well, all right. And they show up to the exam on Friday, and I give them the questions uh, that, I, that I gave them on Monday that they've been prepared for, that they were able to ask questions on. And I even give them bonus questions. Here's a couple of bonus questions you can answer to get more points. If I do that as a teacher... Is it my responsibility if a student fails the test? Is it my responsibility if on Monday the student says, oh, I'm tired of school already. When's the summer going to get here? And, and they say, I'm not even going to look at my lesson plans. And they go to class on Tuesday and they say, well, I'm, I just want to lay my head down because I'm just too tired, which doesn't happen in my class, thankfully. And they say on Wednesday, Man, I know Mr. Watson gave me an assignment to do, but I'd much rather play Xbox all night than actually do that assignment. And then the night before, they were just so tired from get Xbox the night before, I just had to get more sleep. I, I fell asleep before I could study. And they show up, and they fail the exam. Am I, as their teacher, responsible for the failure? Or are they responsible because they had these wrong desires all week that made them be ill-prepared? They're responsible. I've done everything I could to help them out, to prepare them. Gave them the questions, helped them with the answers. Just tell me what I told you. I haven't graded them yet. I hope, I hope they did well. God is responsible for our trials. The trials in your life, God's brought them to you. God is responsible for the tests that you face in your life. He brought them to you. But you are responsible for your desires. You are responsible for your sin. You can think of it this way. God, in creation, created man and woman. So men today, when we go out into the world and we have a lustful thought and a wandering eye, is God responsible because he created woman? I said, well, of course not. That makes no sense that God would be responsible for that. But we as human beings have this this amazing skill at always passing the buck. We're very good at it. Adam did it in the garden, right? Well, God, I did take the fruit, but Eve gave it to me, and you gave Eve to me, so really when you think about it, you kind of made me do it. Blaming God for our temptations and our sins is a good way to wreck our life and our faith. The words that James used to describe temptations is, is actually uh, from, from fishing illustration. I know we've, we've got a fisherman or two out here today. Um, and whenever you go fishing, part of your tackle is a hook. And you put some bait on that hook. And the stinkier that bait is, sometimes the better it is especially if you're fishing for like a catfish or something, get some stink bait on there. You put that hook in the water right where you think that catfish might be, and he smells something, or I assume they smell something. And, and they come out, 
and they say, hmm, that kind of looks good. That kind of smells good. I think, I think I might take a nibble of that. And so he, he hits it just a little bit. And he said, that, that not only smells good and looks good, that, that kind of tastes good. And so then he hits the hook hard, takes the bait, and what does he find out? He's actually not in control anymore. But what's in control? The hook is. The hook is dragging him away, and he's caught. Whenever James uses this word in verse 13, where he says uh, that we are tempted when by our own evil desires we are lured and enticed. That's a fishing illustration that, that many ancient writers use. We are lured and enticed away by, by our sin. We can't blame God for this. It's, it is of our own doing. We cannot blame the people around us. We can't blame our situations. We can't blame God. We can only blame ourselves. And he then explains why we can't really blame God. He said, God can neither be tempted nor can he tempt. It's impossible for God to be tempted by evil, and it's impossible for God to tempt people with evil. You might say, why? And I said, well, the same reason if I said right now, I want you to stand up and start flying around the room. Dude, just stand up now. That would actually kind of be cool. But we're just, I guess we're waiting on jetpacks for this. But no one in here right now could jump up and start flying around the room. You know why? It's not in our nature to fly. We don't have the ability to fly. We don't have the body to fly. And the same is true with God and evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither can he tempt, because it is not in his nature. First John says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Because God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, it is in, not in God's nature to have anything to do with evil. He cannot be tempted by evil because it's not in his nature, and neither can he tempt other people with evil because it's not in his nature. It's on us, and so what must we do? Think two things we, we ought to do. First of all, we need to make sure that we take the blame. We need to make sure that we confess our sins to one another, confess our sins to God. We need to make sure that we are on the hunt for our sins. Some of our problems is that we actually think that we're pretty sinless. And I say that, and it sounds silly, but it's true. I've had periods in my life even where I think, you know, I'm pretty good. I don't have all these vices. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Only to look back hindsight, realizing that I was in those times that I thought I was pretty good, that I think I was actually at my worst. We find our sins in our lives by reading the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 describes the Bible as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him whom we must give an account. You want to find the sins in your life. Begin by reading God's word, reading it carefully, reading it slowly, saying, God, expose to me and show to me my own sin. Show how I fall short of your glory. 
not only must we must confess our sins and take the blame, I think the other thing we have to do is we actually have to fight the temptations and sins in our life. And this fight is actually a two-front battle. It is an outward battle against sin and temptation, but then there's also an inward battle of sin and temptation. The outward battle is oftentimes we are going to try to, to, to put up barriers to, to our sin. If it's your iPhone that causes you to sin, you might say, you know what, I'm going to get me a dumb phone, a phone that can't do anything but call, like in the olden days, in the days of yore. Um, we're going to say, I'm going to stay away from certain places and certain people because when I'm there, I'm tempted to act and behave in a certain way. And we set up these outward barriers. This is right and this is good. Another way of outward battle is that we, we remove weights in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. I can't get out of my mind the idea. Someone in the army helped me. Is, is, it, a, is it a rucksack that you, like you put like all the weight on and start running with it? All right. That sounds miserable. I, like I'm sweating walking to my car like 20 feet away. I can't imagine running miles with 60 pounds on my back. And that's the image I get when I read Hebrews chapter 12, that, that, that he's saying when you are running the race of faith, you need to throw off every weight. Why do you want to throw off every weight? Because when you remove weight, you can run harder and you can run faster because that weight isn't dragging you down. Oftentimes what we do is whenever we think of, uh, of, this, of this, this option in front of us, we, we ask the question, is, is this thing a sin? Because we don't want to sin. We say, I, I, is this a sin? Should I do it or not? That's really the wrong question, isn't it? The question we not ought to ask is not, is this a sin? But much rather, we should say, is this a weight? Is if I do this thing that I'm thinking about doing, will it hinder me in my race to Christ? Will it slow me down in, in running this race of endurance? We're asking the wrong question, and we remove these weights in our lives so that we can fight sin and fight temptation. That's the outward battle. I think the inward battle is much more difficult. That outward battle would get you so far, but will never be fully successful because temptation is not an outward thing. Temptation is an inward thing. So the true battle takes place inward in our hearts. How do we fight temptation in our hearts? these simple yet very complex answers that we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus to replace our desires with greater desires. Our love for Jesus must be greater than the love for our sin. I am thought about a, this week of, of Numbers chapter 21. It's a fascinating story. Uh, you ought to read it sometime soon. Numbers chapter 21. We see Israelites uh, freed from slavery in Egypt they're out in the wilderness. God is giving them fruit, food from heaven, and, and the people are kind of upset. They are upset that they're in the desert, in the, in the wilderness. They're upset that there's not enough water. They're upset 
at the food that, that God has given them. It actually says in Numbers 21, is this, this food is worthless, they say. They say, you've just brought us out to this wilderness, God, to die, and wouldn't it be much better if we were slaves back in Egypt? And as a result of their murmuring and their complaining, the wrath of God and the anger of God rises up, and God sends out serpents into their camp. Poisonous snakes running wild through their camp, starting to bite people, people starting to die from their venom. And so the people of God cry out to God and they say, God, save us. Save us from these snakes. They're, they're killing me. They're killing us. We're dying here. Help us. And so God says, okay, I'll, I'll help you. He goes to Moses and says, Moses, this is how you help the people. I want you to fashion a, a, a serpent, a fiery serpent. So Moses makes a bronze serpent. And God said to Moses, Moses, I want you to put that serpent on a stick, and I want you to lift it up in the camp. And if someone is bit by a serpent, all they have to do to be healed is to look up at that snake, and they'll be healed. Crazy story, isn't it? I've wondered about this story for for years, and it kind of hit me this week when I was thinking about this. Why in the world would God do this? Why in the world would, would he say that the remedy is this bronze serpent and you look up and, and you'll be healed? Well, think, think about this. Let's say, let's say serpents were loose in here. They're all over our feet. They're on the ground. They're biting people. Where's the last place you want to look? The last place you want to look is up. You want to keep your eyes down here at the danger. You want to keep your eyes down here at that which is threatening you. And God is saying, if you want salvation, if you want to be healed from your troubles, you need to stop looking at those troubles. You need to stop looking at those trials. And you actually need to look up to me for your salvation. Because I am greater than that serpent on the ground. Jesus mentions this story in the book of John chapter 3 when he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is saying that the way to be healed is to look up to him. We keep our eyes on Christ to fight our temptation. He must be greater than our other desires. Finally, to ruin your life, to wreck your faith, one of the things you ought to do is make sure you assume the worst in our God. Verses 16 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Whenever we face a trial, oftentimes we don't understand what God is doing. We don't see God's purposes. We don't see God's plan. And so the the solution we make is not only to blame God, but also to think that God is just this horrible being whose sole existence is to make my life miserable. We assume the worst in our God. And what James says in 16 is this. He is saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about who our God is. And then he goes and he describes our God. He says, our God is good. 
Our God gives gifts. Our God is a generous gift giver. He says our God does not change. It's not like he was, he was good yesterday when things were going good, but now things are going bad, so God must be get bad. No, God, God is good regardless of your circumstances in your life. And he is about giving good gifts to you. Even your trials, even your tests, once you're looking back on them from eternity, you'll realize how they were good gifts from God. Our God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our God has a plan. In verse 18, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's a beautiful picture here of first fruits. In the Bible, first fruits were a, a sacrifice, an offering that the Israelites made to God, and they are what it says. They were the first fruits. So you plant a crop, the crop grows up, uh, you harvest it, uh, and the first of the fruits, the first of the produce, you take to God as an offering. You're saying, God, thank you for providing for me and thank you for my crop, my harvest. It was a small portion that represented everything else. And listen to what he's calling followers of Christ, to those who call upon the name of Jesus. He's saying, you, Christian, are actually a first fruit. You're a first fruit. What is he saying by that? He's saying redemption doesn't end with you redemption doesn't end with you god is doing something bigger god is doing something greater god is bringing about healing and redemption for the entire world it says in romans 8 that all of creation is groaning out for the revealing of the sons of god creation is waiting in expectation of sin and the curse being removed and 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 james is saying realize that you are the first wave of that redemption. And from you, God is going to, to, to make things right and make things beautiful. But you are that first offering, that first fruit. Oftentimes when we face a trial, when we face a temptation, we want to assume the worst of God. We want to cry out against Him. But let me encourage you, rather, to press into God, to lean into Him, to know Him better, to deepen that relationship. What are you doing to deepen that relationship? Are you pretty satisfied with where you are in your walk? You say, this, this is kind of where I am. It's, it's in the right spot in my relationship with God. Are you satisfied with that? Or is there a desire to, to know Him in a deeper way? to pursue him in a harder way. James is saying, and Paul is saying throughout the New Testament, that, man, if you're going to have an enduring faith, a steadfast faith, then there has to be a pushing in towards God to know him better. This is good news for us because we find that Jesus does satisfy. One of the things that God has given us in this life to show how he satisfies is is a special ceremony, a special meal we call communion. Communion is 
is a, a covenant renewal ceremony. That if you are a Christian, a baptized believer, you are in covenant with God, where you say, God, you are my God and I am your people. And communion is a way of renewing that vow week after week. Uh, so if you are a baptized believer, we encourage you to partake of communion with us. You're welcome to, whether this is your church or not. Um, it is for people who are struggling against sin, who are fighting sin. It is for people who are repenting against their sin in order for us to receive uh, God's grace. God gives us grace not only through the preaching of the word, but also through the giving of communion. However, communion is not uh, for those who, who don't claim the name of Christ. It's not for unbelievers, and it's not for those who openly reject God and his word. So as we prepare for communion, we need to remember and to contemplate that on the night that Christ was betrayed, he picked up the bread and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Likewise, after the bread, he picked up the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of a new covenant which is shed for the forgiveness of many sins. So as you come forward today, we come, we eat, we drink in thanksgiving because this is God's gift to us. As we stand, we're going to exit out our left side, walk down the aisle, and we'll enter our seats back to the right side. So let us stand and, and partake of this communion.